0: This is C-SPAN's The Weekly. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. And joining us in studio is Ellen Weintraub from the Federal Election Commission. You're one of three members on the FEC, but you're missing a few members. Why?
1: Yes, we should have six by law there are supposed to be six commissioners no more than three from any one political party and it takes four commissioners to form a quorum for most of our important decision making so being down to three is not a good situation we uh, the reason we only have three is because people keep leaving and nobody gets replaced so about three years ago we lost a commissioner and she didn't get replaced. And about two years ago, another commissioner decided to leave and he didn't get replaced. And then at the end of last August, a third commissioner decided to leave and uh, none of them have been replaced. So that's not really optimal. So
0: how do you do your job?
1: Well, it's changed a little bit in the last few months. Um, to some degree, it hasn't, actually. There are a lot of things that get done behind the scenes. Most of the work that gets done at the agency, fortunately, is done by our excellent staff. And uh, they don't require commissioners looking over their shoulders every day in order to do their job. So reports continue to be filed, and they continue to be analyzed, and our analysts continue to ask for additional information when the reports are incomplete. And uh, filers continue to provide that information, and therefore the public continues to get access to all the important information that they need to know about who is supporting which candidates and what those candidates are spending their money on. So all of that can go on without a whole lot of commissioner input, and that's a good thing. However, we cannot launch any investigations, conclude any investigations, uh, issue any – negotiate any penalties, issue any advisory opinions, or issue any rulemakings if there are changing situations that we need to respond to or if there are enforcement actions that need to be taken with fewer than four commissioners.
0: Which leads us to a headline that caught my attention recently from Government Executive, which is basically a trade publication for those who work inside the federal government. And you said the biggest story at the FEC is what's not happening.
1: Yes. Well, as I said, the the uh, uh, that goes exactly to what I was just saying. The advisory opinions that are piling up, the ballots on enforcement matters that are piling up, the rulemakings that aren't getting done, there are... Um, There are many important things that actually do require commission votes, and uh, we can vote, but it can't be concluded until there are at least four votes.
0: So the question is why? Why for three years? Why this president? You've been very critical of Donald Trump, but why this has not been a priority for the administration?
1: Uh, Well, I actually try not to uh, identify anyone by name, uh, particularly anyone who's running for office. Uh, However, the situation right now is that we are waiting for the president to nominate and the Senate to confirm uh, new nominees. And there is not a darn thing I can do about that. I, I don't I don't know why you would have to ask them.
0: You are the longest serving member of the FEC appointed 17 years ago by George W. Bush. Why your interest in this commission...
1: I think the work of this commission is really fundamental to ensuring that we have fair and open and transparent elections. The core mission of the agency is to ensure that uh, voters have the information that they need to make informed choices based on disclosure of campaign finance information. I think money and politics affects not only who gets elected, but what gets uh, adopted after they get elected, what gets enacted. And... Um, I, am, I find these issues very compelling and important to our democracy, and so I, I continue to show up for work every day and, and try to get the job done.
0: So with so much money now being spent, especially in light of the Citizens United case, by the way, how has that impacted your job?
1: Well, Citizens United has had a huge impact on uh, money and politics. Uh, As a result of Citizens United and the cases that followed from it, we saw the rise of the super PACs, which didn't exist before Citizens United. And in the past 10 years, and we just passed the 10-year anniversary of the decision, in the past 10 years, according to our friends at the Center for Responsive Politics, um, there's been $4.5 billion in non-party outside spending, a lot of that through super PACs, but some through 501c4s and and other dark money groups. There's been almost a billion dollars in outside spending by these dark money groups that that don't disclose their donors, uh, defeating the underlying purpose of my agency, for one thing. Uh, and the spent, and this, this money has been raised and spent largely from a very small number of highly motivated ideological donors. Some of them give for business purposes, but many of them give for ideological purposes. Uh, again, uh, citing to the Center for Responsive Politics, in the last 10 years, $1.2 billion has been given to candidates, parties, and other spending groups by the top 10 donors so there are uh really just uh there are a few hundred donors probably who are active in the in the super PAC world but at the very very upper ends there are uh, a, f- a very small number just a handful of donors who are spending an enormous amount of money to try and influence who gets elected in our uh, in order to lead our government
0: i'm going to ask you from time to time to, do, to define some terms dark money is what
1: Dark money is money that is spent by groups that don't disclose their donors. Often those are uh, they're organized under Section 501c4 of the tax code. Uh, they are supposed to be issue groups. Uh, they're supposed to be social welfare groups. They are not supposed to be organized for the primary purpose of influencing elections. However, many of them seem to spend most of their money exactly for the purpose of, of influencing elections.
0: Let's talk about why the FEC was formed in the first place back in the 1970s. Talk of it began in the early 70s, but clearly it was a result of Watergate. And in the early years, if you were running for president, more often than not, you accepted federal matching dollars in the general election.
1: When and why did that change? Uh, Well, well, the public funding uh, program started to decline in two thousand when George W. Bush was the first major presidential candidate to turn down the primary matching funds. Uh, by 2004, uh, several candidates were no longer participating in the primary matching fund system. And then in 2008, Barack Obama was the first candidate, major candidate to turn down the general election grant that was part of the public funding system. And at this point, um, Only very minor candidates ever request public funding at this point. The major candidates can't afford to participate in that system because it comes with spending limits, and the spending limits are way lower than what people can raise privately. So it wouldn't make sense for them to participate.
0: Can you see any way in which that trajectory would be reversed?
1: It would require uh, changes to the law. And I think everyone understands that the law is now obsolete, particularly the spending caps. There are proposals in Congress to update the law, to lift the spending caps, and to um, change the the way the, the money would be allocated, um, looking to, uh, for example, the New York City model of a multiple match of small dollar donors. And uh, I think that it could be revived uh, at the presidential level. I've also seen proposals to to uh, institute public fund uh, a similar public funding system at the uh, for all congressional candidates but it would require change in congress that doesn't seem to be uh, on the um, on the short term horizon
0: you're smiling why
1: well, because there's, there's no campaign finance legislation that is moving in Congress these days.
0: So to better understand this, from 1976 with Jimmy Carter and Gerald Ford until 1996 with Bill Clinton's re-election and Bob Dole, once they were the nominee... They received federal matching dollars for the general election, correct?
1: No, the matching fund is for the primary, and the and then there was a grant, just a, an out-and-out out grant for the general election to carry the candidates through from the nominating conventions in the summertime through the election in the fall.
0: So I guess the question is, why campaigns are so expensive today?
1: Well... <laughs> In part because they can be, people can raise a lot of money, and if they can raise a lot of money, they will raise a lot of money, and they will find ways to spend them. Uh, I've seen uh, predictions that we could be looking at almost ten billion dollars in political advertising in the twenty twenty election. You know, we don't ten
0: billion dollars.
1: Yep. And uh, I mean, we don't, we won't know until it actually happens. But those are, uh, those are some of the forecasts that I have seen, and um, almost three billion of that is probably going to be spent online.
0: Let's take a look at the Michael Bloomberg campaign because he's already spent close to a half billion dollars, if not exceeding that amount. Is the amount of money he's spending a direct result of Citizens United?
1: Actually, no. Uh, that would go back to the Buckley decision uh, in uh, 1975, because Buckley v. Vallejo, Buckley v. Vallejo, the seminal campaign finance uh, case of the of the modern era. Uh, and in Buckley v. Vallejo, the court held that the only rationale that would justify any kind of limitations on on raising funds and campaigns is the risk of corruption, and an individual cannot corrupt. Him or herself; therefore, there is no limit to what a candidate can spend on his or her own race. That's been that's been true for quite a long time, uh, and uh, for uh, and Bloomberg's not the only self funder in this race. Uh, you may recall that in um, in the last uh, presidential election, um, Donald Trump spent a lot of his own money. Not. Not quite as much as, uh, as what we're seeing from uh, Mr. Steyer and Mr. Bloomberg this year. But um, that that we can't peg on Citizens United. You have to go back to Buckley to uh, find the rationale for why it's okay for one person to spend that much money as long as it's his own race and his own money.
0: But what these billionaires in the race, from your standpoint, you've been around this a long time. Is this the new norm? Will we see more of this in coming elections, do you think?
1: Oh, there's no way to know. I, I I would I would I would not want to predict what the dynamics are going to be four years from now. I, I think we're we're still grappling with what the dynamics are this year.
0: So what is your reaction to the amount of money that Michael Bloomberg is spending this year? And he has said he'll spend whatever it takes to get the nomination.
1: I, I don't really have any particular comment about that. It is it's obviously it's, it's changing the complexion of the race. Uh, I was uh, looking at the numbers earlier today as to how much money has been raised and spent. If you go to our homepage and scroll down to the bottom of fec.gov, you'll find the latest numbers on uh, how much money each of the major candidates has has raised. And uh, up until a few months ago, Donald Trump had a very long line on the bar graph, and uh, nobody else was, was close to it. And uh, now that bar graph looks very different. Um, whether this is a, uh, a a good trend or a bad trend, uh, I'm 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 not going to comment on. But it certainly is a different trend.
0: We are talking with Ellen Weintraub. She is a commissioner with the FEC. Let me go back to the three members on the commission. What is your typical day like, since the meetings really are non-existent, or the quorum that you need in order to get anything done?
1: Well, the uh, we do meet once a month on, by statute, where the commission is supposed to meet once a month, and we are continuing to have those monthly meetings. They're a lot shorter than they used to be. There's not... Um, a lot of interest in spending time going through our enforcement docket since we can't resolve anything right now. And that is uh, that is unfortunate. But I do continue to spend time reviewing those cases, reviewing the case files and um, uh, trying to stay up to date on the uh, massive piling up backlog that is, uh, that is accumulating. Uh, also, as uh, you can imagine, in an election year, there's a lot of interest in not only the FEC, but in money and politics in general. So I get a lot of invitations like this one to um, go on interview shows, to speak to folks about what's going on. Uh, I've been invited to do some writing on the topic. So I'm I'm doing a lot of outreach. I just got back from uh, uh, San Antonio, where the commission held one of its uh, regular regional conferences. We uh, A couple of times a year, we go to different parts of the country with a bunch of our staff to help educate the public, uh, particularly those who are participating in politics, on what the rules are. And I always try and uh, participate in those kinds of conferences. I think it's a it's a great opportunity for people outside of Washington to have up close contact with a decision maker in this area and to hear what we're what we're doing and what the law is.
0: And you have always been gracious with your time for C-span whether it's newsmakers, the Washington Journal or this podcast the weekly and it's evident that you are passionate about money and politics. Where does that come from?
1: I've uh, I've always been committed to public service, and um, this is the uh, this, this has been my particular area of public service. I come actually from a, a long line of uh, individuals who have made a career in uh, in various forms of state and local and federal public service. Uh, I was I'm a lawyer. I was in private practice for a number of years, but. Um, I think there is no better client to have than the American people, and I'm very happy to be able to do my best to serve them in this position.
0: Where's home originally, and where did you go to school?
1: Uh, Home originally is New York City. I'm a Queens girl. Uh, Went to public school in, in Queens and then went to Yale College and Harvard Law School.
0: So remind our listeners again, if you want to contribute to a candidate for the House, the Senate, or the presidency, hard money that goes to the campaign. How much can they contribute?
1: Twenty eight hundred dollars.
0: And where does that num- number come from?
1: Uh, that comes from the Federal Election Campaign Act, and it gets adjusted. But why twenty
0: eight hundred, not thirty five hundred or two thousand?
1: Oh, I think it started out as one thousand, and it's gone up with inflation over the years. Um, uh, it was originally not inflation adjusted, and then I think they changed that um, at some point along the way. But the idea was, uh, and and. Buckley uh, confirmed this, that without contribution limits, there is an inherent risk of corruption in unlimited contributions that go directly to candidates. Now, where I would diverge from the rationale of the court is when it concluded that in Citizens United that despite this inherent risk of corruption in money that's going directly to the candidates' coffers, that there's no risk of corruption in money that goes to super PACs or other groups that are out there trying to elect the very same candidates. I, I, I think it really does not comport with common sense to say that a $3,000 contribution directly to the candidate could be corrupting, but a $3 million contribution to a super PAC that's doing nothing but trying to elect that very same candidate can't possibly be corrupting. I I just don't think that makes sense. And I don't think that rings true to most people, which is why it is such an unpopular decision.
0: Which goes to an argument that I know is not your area of jurisdiction. It has to be something that Congress would pass, but requiring more transparency with these donations.
1: I certainly think that we need more transparency with these donations. And um, uh, there are some in Congress who have tried to uh, accomplish that, to try and uh, get more um, transparency from these outside dark money groups that are spending uh, a lot of money in order to try and influence who gets elected.
0: Are corporations people too?
1: I don't think they really are. Um, However, what the court has said is is actually a little bit more refined than that. They haven't said that corporations are people so much as corporations can speak for people. There are people associated with the corporation, notably the shareholders, um, who have First Amendment rights. And uh, they don't lose those First Amendment rights when they um, speak through a corporation, I think. Part of the problem with that rationale is that particularly if you're talking about uh, large publicly held corporations, the notion that the shareholders really have any, any significant real world input in the political messages that are being po- put forth by the corporation, I think it's just uh, a fiction.
0: And, you know, if you talk to members of Congress, uh, to a person, he or she often says the one thing they hate the most is dialing for dollars, trying to raise money. Again, this is not an area of your jurisdiction, but somebody who follows this issue, how do you change that trajectory? How How do you reduce the amount of money that is being spent? A lot of it's spent on advertising, which is very
1: expensive. Well, I, I don't think you, one can reduce it. The, the other countries reduce it by just having spending caps, but uh, our courts have said that that would be unconstitutional in contrary of to the speech. First Amendment. Uh, so, if you if if you hold that um, as as your basic premise that you can't have any spending limits, then people will continue to try to outspend their opponent in in hopes that that will win them the election. It doesn't always work that way. I mean. The, a big, notable example of that would be Donald Trump, who raised uh, less money than Hillary Clinton and um, and yet he won. So it doesn't raising more money doesn't and spending more money doesn't always win you the election. However, uh, people seem to think that it it will give them an advantage, so they keep trying to do that.
0: Commissioner Weintraub, there's a a piece available online at political.com looking at money in politics. And one of the questions that they're posing is the role of super PACs in presidential elections. And there was a recent development with Senator Elizabeth Warren, who throughout much of the campaign said that she was going to refuse super PAC money, but now is forced to do so because she needs the funds and her other candidates are already accepting that money.
1: Well, you know, part of the problem with this... um Uh, with the question that you're posing is that super PACs are supposed to be independent of the candidates. The whole premise underlying their existence is that they are independent of the candidates and therefore the candidates won't be corrupted by the money that is donated, uh, often in seven-figure increments, to the super PACs. So the notion that somebody has their own super PAC really flies in the face of the rationale. And yet that is how everyone describes them, because the the super PACs do have such close ties to the candidates. And I think that is a problem. Uh, It's something that uh, the FEC could, if it had the political will to do so and at least four members, uh, could crack down on that and uh, erect stronger barriers between the candidates and the super PACs. But um, that has not happened. To date, I have I have not found much interest in um, uh, in a, in approaching these issues or even launching a rulemaking. It's it's really kind of astonishing. But in the ten years since Citizens United, we have not done a major rulemaking addressing most aspects of of the ramifications of that decision.
0: Again, as somebody who is observing and so closely associated with this issue, do you think we are heading for another Supreme Court case? that may in part say, let's have no restrictions on how much money an individual can contribute to a candidate for the House, Senate, or the presidency?
1: Well, I mean, the the court would have to reverse uh, a lot of years of holdings on contribution limits. They have so far upheld the contribution limits uh, whenever it's been uh, presented to them. Uh, I I sometimes get the sense that they're just trying to make it... um, Unpalatable to Congress to maintain those contribution limits, and they are in some sense daring Congress to just uh, eliminate them on their own. But uh, whether the court would actually strike down contribution limits, um, I, I wouldn't want to. Uh, I, I wouldn't want to put a lot of money on the Supreme Court upholding any kind of com- campaign finance uh, regulations in the current era, because they are fairly hostile to everything except disclosure. So um, I wouldn't want to make any predictions, but I'm I'm not I'm not seeing any imminent threat of that.
0: As somebody who has spent 17 years on the commission, when was the last time you had all six members on board? You have to think about it. Right?
1: I I would have to think about that. <laughs> I I don't know off the top of my head. It's it's been a while. It, obviously, there were uh, there was a period of two years where we were down to four. So it's uh, it's more than a few years.
0: Do you have any sense that the president will appoint one or two or three new commissioners this year?
1: You know, he doesn't talk to me about that, so I have no idea.
0: In terms of enforcement, let me go back to your earlier point. Uh, You have a staff that is looking at campaigns and contributions. Do you have the resources and the funding to do what you need to do?
1: Well, right now, our our biggest obstacle is that we don't have commissioners to make decisions. So, um, you know, work is backing up because of that. There are uh, at least 120 cases sitting on commissioners' desks right now awaiting some kind of decision as to whether to launch an investigation, conclude an investigation, dismiss the case altogether. Uh, Some of them are brand new complaints that the commission hasn't weighed in on at all. So that is the biggest problem in terms of resources right now. The biggest resource that we need is at least one more commissioner. Uh, Having said that, I think that the commission has uh, struggled for years to really conduct timely investigations and conclude things on an expeditious uh, basis so that the result of the investigation would be in some kind of proximity to when the violation took place. Because if it takes years to conclude these things, and sometimes investigations take a while, but I think sometimes things really could have been wrapped up sooner than they were, Uh, Because if it takes years to get it done, then nobody much remembers or cares anymore by the time it's concluded. So I would like to see us devote more resources to our enforcement division, to hiring some more staff so that we could process the cases quicker.
0: And you have raised the alarm bells that you need another commissioner, you need more staff. Is Congress listening? Do they even care?
1: I don't know, but you're asking the wrong person. You need to ask them that question.
0: Have you talked to them, though? Have you talked to Speaker Pelosi?
1: Uh, not recently, no.
0: So what happens next in terms of this time period? Could we go for another five years if the president is reelected with just three members or maybe even fewer on
1: the FEC? That is entirely out of my hands. And uh, and I should note, since you asked about the speaker, that um, nominations are made by the president. They're confirmed by the Senate. The House actually doesn't have a big role in this.
0: So what about the Senate Democratic leader, Chuck Schumer? Because clearly this is an issue that, uh, as a Democrat, you were appointed by a Republican, but this is an issue that uh, has been front and center, but it doesn't seem as if lawmakers are really focused on it.
1: Well, as you, as you have noted, I have spoken out fairly clearly about the need for new commissioners, and I, I just – it's out of my hands.
0: If you could change the way the FEC works beyond the fact that you need more commissioners, what would you do?
1: Well, there are, there are a number of proposals to um, uh, reform the FEC in various ways. The most controversial one is to change the number of commissioners. But there are also a, a number of other proposals out there that I think would really help us do our job better. Such as? Such as. um when we do uh, handle our enforcement docket, uh, under the law right now, we have to negotiate uh, what we call conciliation agreements with the folks who are the subject of the complaint. Uh, outside of the administrative fine program, which is a, a defined uh, program for um, kind of a traffic ticket kind of approach to people who don't file their reports on time or in some cases don't file their reports at all. But outside of that context we don't have the authority to actually just impose a penalty we have to negotiate with people over it that's not really a great way to conduct business as an infor- a law enforcement agency we ought to if if the if we could get a bipartisan agreement that a certain fine was appropriate we ought to have the authority to just impose that fine the way other enforcement bodies do so that's one change that i would make uh Also, we have for a number of years um, really had uh, a lot of split decisions where one side wants to move forward and the other side does not. And uh, this is an ideological divide that falls on party lines. But in almost every single one of the split decisions that has happened, it has been the Democratic commissioners who have wanted to move forward and the Republican commissioners who have wanted uh, not to and have, have blocked action moving forward. And that is true regardless of whether it is a, uh, a Democrat or a Republican who is being complained about, which I think is, is not a – that's the way it's been for the last 12 years or so. Uh, but that is not what was anticipated when they set up this bipartisan commission. It's a It's a – It's a different kind of problem that results from the 3-3 split on the commission. Now, one way of addressing this would be to flip the presumption on what it takes to start an investigation such that if the professional staff of the agency recommended an investigation, it could the law could be changed so that that investigation would go forward unless it was blocked by at least four commissioners voting against launching the investigation. And that would allow the staff to gather more facts and present them to the commission so that when we decide whether the law has actually been violated or not and whether a penalty is appropriate or not, we would at least have a full factual record in front of us. Right now, what happens is that the investigations often get stopped before they even get started. So we are um, arguing about whether the law might have been violated, but we, don't, but we don't have a full factual record in front of us.
0: And one final point, because you really have become the face of the FEC. What are your future plans? Do you intend to stay?
1: I think that the mission of our agency is critically important to our democracy. I'm very committed to it. I'm very passionate about it, as you have noted. So uh, for as long as I am at the FEC, I will continue to do my best for the American people. How long I stay is entirely out of my hands.
0: Because your term has expired, technically, correct? It has. It has. If people want to follow you, Commissioner, on social media, how can they do so?
1: They can follow me on Twitter, at Ellen L. Weintraub. You have to get the middle initial in there, or you'll be following another Ellen Weintraub.
0: And, of course, the website is fec.gov. We thank you for stopping by.
1: Thank you so much.
0: And a reminder, this podcast is available on the free C-SPAN radio app, or wherever you download your favorite podcast. Please subscribe to us. Be sure to rate us and like us. We thank you for listening.